How do you find your way into the entertainment industry? This is a question that a lot of people getting into this are plagued by because you may have goals in mind, but like, what's the first step? What are the things you do to get started and make money and build towards it? My guest today, Jessica M. Thompson, started out with editor work and eventually became a writer-director at a movie at South by Southwest and continues to be a writer-director with projects on her slate. In our interview today, we talk a lot about how she handles the grind of just being a director, up for things, trying to get them, seeing what happens, not having any control over that, but also how she found her way into editing, how that became her entree into the industry at large, and how she leveraged what she learned there to becoming a better writer and director. So here we go, Jessica Thompson. Thanks so much for being here. Very exciting. You have a film uh, coming soon. I, I just you know, want to talk a little bit about, because at No Film School, we're always interested in this as well, sort of debut features and how a director gets their first feature and your first feature, at least the one I know about, because sometimes people have features they did that we don't know about, but, but the first, your first features. feature, <laughs> right, yeah, zero, number zero, and there might be 10 of those before there's number one. But number one was at South by Southwest, did pretty well there, and won an audience award, right? And so I think just starting with how did you get that feature going and what was it like navigating a fest of that size and, and having like success there? And how did you kind of like, you know, that opens a lot of doors, right? Yeah, absolutely. It did for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I made a lot of the moon for $100,000 by the skin of my teeth maxed out credit cards, did everything, you know, I could to get this film made. I'd been working as an editor and, you know, always wanted to, you know, and I'd been doing short films as a writer-director, but hadn't made my feature debut yet and was really keen to, um, and felt like I'd, you know, learned enough and had the skills and had the right amount of crew and things like that to get it off the ground. So I basically did Seed and Spark. So I crowdfunded um, the first 40000 and then that kind of got us going. And then I started working with the casting director. And at first I was going to, you know, cast this really indie and kind of, you know, work with local, I was living in New York City at the time and work with local actors there. And we did lots of auditions. And then a producer came on board, uh, Michael Cuomo, who just happened to be a friend of a friend. And he really highly recommended that I take this out to kind of more established actors. And that's when Stephanie Beatrice, you know, from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and um, Short Time yeah. 12 came on board. And she's fantastic. And she's an absolute, you know, incredible talent. And I'm so glad that the that she felt compelled to tell the story with me. Then that kind of changed things a little bit because then we were able to get a few 5 to 10K kind of executive producers come on board. And that's how we kind of made up the rest of our budget. But luckily, you know, from having you know, doing commercials and doing uh, a lot of uh, documentary work in the business. I had quite a few connections at the camera houses and I got the biggest thing that made the difference was I got like a $60,000 camera package for $2,000. And I think that really, you know. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> changed, that helps. Yeah. Changed the look. And that's because, you know, I'd been working in the business for eight years and had met, established these connections and had, you know, and I would pay them for commercial shoots and things like that. I had my own little production company and I was doing, you know, content work through that. Yeah. So that was great. What was the camera package? I'm just curious. 
Uh, yeah, so it was uh, an Ari Alexa. We only had one camera for a couple of days where we had more cast. We had two cameras, um, but um, usually we only had one. And, yeah, and these Leica lenses, these kind of vintage lenses, and we had also had, you know, obviously they gave us some incredible lights and things like that as well. But, yeah, it was so a very good package, and, and it was it changed the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you knew that's what you wanted to use, right? You You were targeting that, and you knew you had the relationships to make it work. Yeah, and I've always shot on. I've shot now um, a TV series in my latest film, all on the Ari Alexa. So I'm a big fan of that camera. So um, yeah, I basically, you know, I was um, entrepreneurial, and I knew that every connection I made, I was just always like thinking, you know, of course, I'm not. How could I use this person? But how how can I down the road, you know, how can this help work for both of us, you know? So so I kind of called in all those papers. And was this feature always in your mind? Was it like this was the one that you that you knew you were building towards? Or did you just think, I want to build the connections in general? Or did you have like, a, in general, for a feature? Like, or did you have this targeted, like, it's going to be this feature when I'm ready? No, I actually, my ideas are usually are a little bit bigger than what The Light of the Moon is. You know, I like a lot of um, grounded sci-fi, a little like a lot of genre, like big drama kind of ensemble casts. And I have a joke that my producer, Carla Vallejo, who I met on day one of film school when we were both 18 in Sydney, Australia, I have a joke that he said, okay, you have two characters in six rooms, now go write something. Because that's <laughs> all you can really do, you know, with $100,000. And then unfortunately, you know, the film is about sexual assault and the recovery from that. And a friend had that happen to her in New York and it was kind of like really interesting how I had never seen that side of the story told where you know how how much it infiltrates your kind of daily life your work your relationships all that stuff and I asked her to if I could you know kind of tell her story so that's how that that story came about yeah and when you talked about sort of the the production company the shorts it's kind of building the Mm -hmm. resume the experience the repetitions that get you to ready for the feature what went into your strategy coming out of film school? I mean, I know I'm going back further in time, but coming out of film school and thinking, you know, where do I start? What was step one for you? Because I think a lot of people do think like, I'm going to start with my feature <laughs> or I want to direct television <laughs> shows or, you know, and we laugh because we know it's, it's, there's a lot of between that point A and point B. It's more like that's point A and point Z. But what were yeah. the, what for you, what were the things that you focused on or that you succeeded with? And maybe even what were some of the things you were like, I wouldn't do that again. Like I would have, I think yeah. I wasted some time. Yeah. And I was the same, of course, you're so gearing to go. And like, I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 12 and, you know, it's not, uh, and I, you know, I've never wavered since then, but I would really strongly discourage people and encourage people to not do their first feature straight out of film school or anything like that. You really do need the experience, but not just to make it, you, you need the life experience too, to really know what kind of story you want to tell. Um, I now look back at the scripts that I wrote when I was like 18, 20, 22, and I'm like, oh, these are terrible. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm so glad I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't waste my money and my time and my energy making them. And you know, so I really do think there is something to be said for paying your dues and um, earning that experience and and that life experience too to figure out your voice. You know, but I, I decided uh, when I was at film school, I really fell in love with editing. You know, was uh, like unintentionally so. I you know realized just how much you shape the story in the edit room. And you can change the story and change the kind of trajectory of the film. So I looked at some of my favorite filmmakers. It was very strategic. I saw that a lot of them started off as editors, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen and, you know, even Kurosawa started off, Robert Rodriguez. And so I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'll become an editor and that'll be uh, how I, how I kind of get in. But also at the same time, obviously learning really important skills that I will take with me as a director. 
So that's kind of like what I did after film school. I became an assistant editor at a post-production company in Sydney, and they mostly did uh, TV commercials and music video clips. Did a couple of docs there as well. And then I found this Sydney was too small. Like it was just too, Australia in general, you know, it's a great location and we shoot a lot of American films there. But in terms of Australian films, there's very few that are made, especially mm. back then. Now now it's getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, obviously we have Seesaw Films, who I worked with on my TV series, The End, and they just did The Power of the Dog. Obviously they've changed the game a lot since they, you know, opened up shop about 10 years ago. But it's uh, mostly, you know, it's just smaller. It's just a smaller country. It's a, you know, it's a less established industry. So that's when I decided when I was 24, I decided to make the move to New York City without knowing a single soul. Wow. <laughs> I recommend that. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy, and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. Well, you wouldn't, but it also worked out kind of, right? Can you tell us about oh, no, the choice? Worked out. Yeah. <laughs> can you tell us about the choice to do that and the and what you like? Okay, what do you do when you're deciding? Because I, I, so many people are probably in this kind of position. They're like, do I make the move to a New York or an LA? And then when I do, what do you do when you arrive? Who do you call? Where do you set up? Where do you start? Do you start looking yeah. like on Craigslist or Mandy.com or do you do you like for opportunities to be an assistant editor? Like what's the first few steps there? Yeah. So yeah, all of those. Um, so I landed in LA, spent six weeks here and decided I did not like it. Um, I now am <laughs> back in LA. <laughs> I now am back in LA. It's almost like too big of a 
industry here and without knowing anyone it was like felt much harder to break and also there's a lot of douchebags here there are in new york oh. too but i feel oh, like yeah. there's people here ready to you know prey on the weak or something or prey on the vulnerable so i quickly you know left and moved to new york and the second i got into new york i was like oh yeah these are my people these like they don't give a shit about anybody <laughs> these are my people <laughs> like you know they don't care what kind of short film you have going on or whatever else and so uh yeah i did i actually did all of the above craigslist mandy luckily because i had these skills as an editor i was able to get some freelance editing work at doing commercials pretty quickly like pretty easily but I did take a step back because I wanted to break into feature filmmaking and I took an assistant editing role on a HBO documentary feature for Liz Garbus, who's a you know Oscar-winning film director. And then I took a step back and that was a big decision where I was like, okay, obviously you're taking a pay cut. You're also doing, you know, you, as an assistant, you don't get to do as much of the fun editing stuff. You know, it's a lot of organizational right. stuff. But it was in the end, she could tell that I could edit. And so I ended up stepping up on the next film that she did and edited it with a couple of other editors as well. That was Love, Marilyn. And that was kind of like a documentary narrative hybrid. So that's kind of like how I, you know, kind of broke into features in that way. But I'm pretty sure that I responded to on Mandy.com, the assistant editor job. So yeah. that's um, so so yeah, it did start out it. just like you looked for jobs, you found them, you got started. Yeah, it's funny you you mentioned preying on the weak and just that that that's part of the culture and that the industry is tough to navigate. It's you're you're at a point now, I mean, where you know you're more established, you have features done, but what are the things about a project or an opportunity that you're drawn to initially when you're considering something, when you're deciding between what you want to pursue next or, you know, how many different projects do you try to have kind of going or scripts do you have work, mm -hmm. working on? Like, how do you manage your, your time and, and your, your focus, your effort? Because it's, it's always hard, right? It's always like, what's next? Because yeah. you do something like South By and you have the feature and it wins an award. Things start happening. I assume you got reps and stuff, but, yep. you know, you still have so much to do, right? Yeah, there's so much work and that's uh, it never stops, right? And I, I should say, like, uh, because you, I didn't answer that first part of the question, but when I was at South by, I really hadn't done a festival like that of that size and of that magnitude. And I really kind of was a little ill prepared. I didn't realize how much of, uh, for want of a better term, a meat market it is. You know, everyone's kind of trying to vie for your attention. I thought I would just like, uh, go with a bunch of the filmmakers that I made at the light of the moon with and would, and would watch 40 films and go to parties. You know, uh, that was not, I watched like two films, like, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but it was great in that, like, obviously we actually sold our film there um, to a distributor, which doesn't always happen, you know? Um, so you're, you're doing that. You're taking meetings with people to, to sell your film, but then also you take a lot of meetings with agents and managers and you, and that's where I met my uh, managers, uh, Josh and Hannah at Kaplan Throne. I've been with them ever since and they've really like looked after me. They actually flew me to LA right after South by and I did my first water bottle tour of Hollywood. I think it was like 40 meetings in one week, which was crazy. But yeah, that's kind of like was like my initiation by fire, you know. And then scripts start coming in. And to be honest, I have... I'm very picky, as everybody should be, but I really don't like many things. <laughs> I'm just, I have a, I think I pass on 99.9% .9 of things that come my way. And for it to grab my attention means something about it. You know, whether it, and it may not be that the script is perfect when it grabs my attention. It might be that the concept is really strong or they might, or sometimes I get sent books as well. And, and, you know, it might be that the, you know, the initial idea is really strong and I want to execute it in a different way. And that's what happened with the invitation with Sony. I got sent the script. Blair Butler's script in January of 2020. And I really love this concept of like, 
the origin story of a bride of Dracula. Like that's so freaking cool. Right. But I was like, I didn't, I wanted to rewrite the script and they, and I did, you know, and that's to something that I, that I felt was more aligned with my taste and my vision. Um, and that's the kind of final film we have. Yeah. But it's hard to navigate. Right. Because, you know, it's like, there's so many opportunities and you don't want to lose your sight of who you are and your vision. And, but you've also got to pay the bills. You know, that's a real situation. And I decided to not stop editing. I don't know why. I think in my mind, I just was like, I can't do it anymore. I'd lost the pizzazz to edit TV commercials. I could tell my soul was just like dying inside. It was really, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it was really good to me for, for whatever that was, 10, 15 years, whatever long it was. And I, you know, but I just, I was just getting, I was just not in the right headspace to keep doing it when I had, when I know I could direct and I knew I had something else to offer. Yeah. It's kind of like you tasted other things and it was hard to go back kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, literally the day that my film came out at the IFC in New York, The Light of the Moon, I was editing a water commercial. And I remember being so like, I was like, you know, I was dressed up a little bit. I was ready to go downtown uh, to the IFC, uh, you know, and these these clients were just like, you know, futzing about. And uh, I just was so short with them because I just wanted to. And they didn't know I had a film premiering. They didn't right. know who I was. But I remember being like, we're not curing cancer, guys. And I was like, oh, God, Jess, you're going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like, yeah. it's like you said, you have that taste of something else and it's the life that you want to live and you can't go back. It's very hard once you've tasted that, to go back. That's such a funny dichotomy because, yeah, the world of... Even though there's a, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of opportunity, like in the world of commercial work, for example, like it's not like people making commercials necessarily care about what's happening in the world of indie features, right? It's like it's yeah. not like they're like, oh, yeah, we know about... Yeah, they don't care. That's a whole different yeah. business, even though the skill sets and the industry is similar. So it's kind of a fascinating little juxtaposition there. Once you're moving on and you're more looking at other projects, how often are you, the invitation, for example, comes as a script and then you work and develop it a little bit. How often are you out there pitching things with yeah. working with producers and actors on things you're already writing or want to get? And it, versus how often are you looking at stuff that comes to you? Versus how often are you like up for open directing assignments or, you know, how does mm-hmm. it all kind of come together? Yeah, like all that? of the above. Yeah, because I didn't answer that other question of yours, which was really good. I usually, I have a theory. You have six iron, irons in the fire and one will go. So I've always got about six projects going at one time. And it's hard to, I've learned really well how to compartmentalize and jump between those projects. Yeah. So at the moment, you know, I've got a feature that I wrote with working title that we're casting. I've got, you know, a TV pilot that's out on the town. I've got, you know, uh, another feature psychological thriller, but I'm also, there's two books that I might adapt. So it's con- it's constantly, you're moving these pieces. And like you said, you're pitching, I'm pitching almost every, every week, you know, on different projects. But that being said, I'm extremely picky much to my representatives probably <laughs> disclaimer in that i i don't want to make anything i don't love this is a every single thing we do as a director takes about two two and a half years of our life and i've learned that i can't fake it i'm really someone who can't pretend i am into something if i'm not so i i only take on board things that i really am deeply deeply passionate about that i know i can that passion will last the whole time you know, and right now, like even even once you finish the film, you've got to do press, you've got to market it, you've got to, you know, put it out there. And if you don't love it, I don't see how you can physically do it. Yeah. So that's kind of how I've approached it. When the first thing that I did after The Light of the Moon was the end, and that's a, you know, a, a kind of dramedy about euthanasia it has a very dark kind of 
dark gallows humor to it. And that script to me was a 10 out of 10. The second I read it, it was like the best thing mm. I'd read, Samantha Strauss, the writer. And there was no way I was not going to do it. And that was a, a direct offer from the guys at Seesaw Films, Emil Sherman. And they sent it to me. I mean, obviously I had to pitch in it. They weren't just going to give it to me, but I put together like, you know, the amount of effort that you put into these, these pitches, nobody really talks about, right? But I put together like a 20 minute, I, I mean, I did edit that. So there you go. But like a 20 minute pitch, a visual pitch for them uh, to win the job, you know, and a lot of effort goes into just getting the job. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, again, you have, it's in a lot of ways, I keep repeating this, but a lot of people would see something like, you know, your first feature that gets to South by and things like that starting to be like, okay, now I do kind of choose what I want to do. Right. But (laughs) talk about pitching, like reading a script that's amazing that you're like, this is a 10 out of 10. I have to do this. And then being like, how am I going to win this job? Right. Because putting a pitch together, a video pitch and cutting a sizzle and things like that. Tell us about what you choose to do, what takes you, gets you into the running, you know, with all the people out there that are competing for a job like that. Exactly. And don't forget, like, you know, yes, I know that it feels like that's what happens after South, you premiere and win an award at South by that your career is made. That's not at all the case. It's so much hard work ahead of you. But yeah, for the end, you know, obviously they saw my film at the Sydney Film Festival, the producers at Seesaw. And so they reached out to me directly, which was very kind. But it wasn't like they were just handing it to me. They wanted to, you know, they were, it's a, it's a risk for them as well. They see it as like this woman that's done this one small indie film. Now we're going to trust her to do 10 episodes of a TV show. You know, so you've got to prove to them why you're the right person and, you know, what you identify and what you love about the script and the characters. So I decided that's not something that I'd heard of people doing but I did more of like a 20 minute, I went through, you know, tone, characters, the world. And I just decided to do a video. No one told me to do this. I just decided that's what I wanted to do. So I kind of, you know, I was talking to, I kind of set up my cameras. I did some of it to camera. And then I did, you know, over the top, like montages of things from other films and other TV series that I felt had a similar sensibility to our show and that's really they sent that then to the uh the showtime and the fox uh, the foxhole and sky who were the three companies that were making the series and they sent it to them and they all agreed that i was one so that's how you that's that's one version of it for the invitation i put together a really extensive pitch deck that was probably about 40 pages and i pitched to you know i think five times to get that job so you know you pitch to the yeah you pitch to the (laughs) The producer, and then you pitch to the, the kind of the low, the, the the you know the junior executive. Then you pitch to the next executive. Then you pitch to the president of the whole studio, you know, and you go through. And that was actually the last meeting anyone took. It was March sixteenth, twenty twenty, before the pandemic. It was the last oh, wow. meeting that they took at Sony was my pitch, which I'm very grateful that I eked in under the wire. So you had some success with pitching, which is one of the hardest things to but do. But I should say um, I've also had lots of non-success with pitching. I should say yes that there has been many things that I one thing just recently that I came so close to it was between me and one other filmmaker and I didn't get it and it breaks your heart yeah. every time you know so it's yeah. not it's not like I I just get it now I don't you know you've still got you're still fighting against all the way you know yeah I can relate and understand the nose feels so loud every time you know and I think that one thing I'm really curious about is so two things I guess one is what are some of your pitch strategies and like your, what's your pitch toolbox, I guess, besides like you've created some, sounds like you've put a lot into creating extensive stuff, a 40 pager or video. 
But what are some other strategies? Like how do you, interactions in the room, things like that. And then another thing would be, how do you manage just the emotional grind of the no's? I don't know if I do, but... Um, <laughs> I, uh, well, you persevere actually, somehow. So yeah, how do you persevere? persevere? persevere. Yeah, um, I will say, I don't think I'm actually the best pitcher. I'm good in a room and that I'm, I'm chatty and I'm, I'm like, you know, I've got chutzpah, but I get really nervous during pitches and I've tried really hard to try to... It's like when all eyes are on me, it's mm. it, that's the hardest when it's just a conversation like this right now that's that's absolutely fine you know but it's um yes. i do struggle a little bit in the room and you've got to remember that some people that are winning these pitches they're not actually the best directors or the best writers right, right? It's no just, that's it's a very that good they, point yeah it's just that they're good in a room and that they're good at selling this idea they're actually good salespeople is what they are yes so i think you've got to try to like keep those nerves at bay and it's i've always found i know this is terrible but the more you can pretend you don't want it in your head, that that it helps. <laughs> like that's you don't, that's a good one. Yeah, don't hold everything. I mean, it's fake, right? And you know you want it deep down. You really, really <laughs> want it. <laughs> but it's kind of like you fake. You just like pretend. You know, this is a job. You're going in. You're you're setting yourself up. But don't put so all your eggs in that basket. Don't put all your weight, all your mental capacity on it. Otherwise, you will really drop really hard if you don't get it. And I'm not saying that's you know you've got to be vulnerable. That's the only way to win something, right? So still put all your effort in, but that's the way that I manage my nerves, I think, is to like, you know, I do have six things going. This is not the be all and end all. You know, I try to just remind myself that you're good at what you do, but, uh, you know, don't. But that being said, you know, the one that recently I just got rejected on, <laughs> I, you know, I really don't get out of bed that day. Like I kind uh, of, maybe I like go up and I like, you know, eat some food and like, you know, watch something that I've been wanting to watch that I've been, you know, holding up watching for whatever reason. But I really need that day of recovery and of kind of licking my wounds a bit of just, and I don't know if that's the right way to go about it, but that's, um, but it sounds like you're I've giving, been. it sounds like, well, the honesty about it is nice, but also self-care phrase we hear a lot now. And I think that it sounds like you identify like, here's what I need to get back on my feet. I need time to be sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, like I disappointed. Always will. I always, yeah, I will always get back on my feet. I will always persevere. I will always look forward to what, you know, the other couple of projects that I have on the burner. But it is that I do need a day. I'm not someone who can just like shrug it off and be like, okay, well, their loss, you know, everyone always says that. Your reps always say it's their loss. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it's my loss too. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, well, you have good so. reps because I, I, you have good reps if they say that because <laughs> there's plenty who don't. <laughs> But I, you know, something in there uh, nestled in what you said that that really caught my attention was the idea of that you're okay if you don't get it, kind of. And I have often thought, and I haven't ever tested this theory. It's been a long time since I've been in a room pitching, but I've I've wondered as I've gotten older. I've always wondered because in negotiations in general, the idea of not really needing it or being able to walk away is actual power and makes you mm. comfortable and confident. And I and I wondered as soon as you said it because I think it's so hard for filmmakers to to make that part of the equation that they could say like oh it's a big opportunity for me but I'll be fine if I don't get it I don't really care it's their loss like if you can buy into that even just a little bit I wonder yeah. if everybody wants something they can't have so it's not like being aloof but I just wonder about that it's a very interesting idea and I wonder if it helps you that you have that in the back of your mind that you're like trying to emphasize that there's other fish in the sea for you. 
Yeah, I think that is just on the day of, like obviously in the lead up to, I'm so in, immersed in it and I'm so, you know, whether I'm making a deck or a video for the pitch, I'm so, you know, 100% all in. It's But it's almost the day of the pitch. I just to calm myself, I just kind of tell myself like, you know, this is not the only thing you want, you know, maybe, you know, you want it, but you don't want it that much. I don't know. And it's all, I think it's, I, to be honest, I, I started, uh, I also did a lot of acting when I was younger and still take acting classes ah. just to, just to be able to keep up to speed with what, you know, actors, how, you know, I think it's important as a director to know how to speak to your actors and how to yeah. understand what they're going through. So I still do some drop-in acting classes every now and then. And I think it's that kind of stuff that helps me, because that helps me get into that mindset. And now I'm saying, I'm making this out like I'm a nailed this, but I'm still, you know, figuring it out for myself as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, you look, you, to be fair, you have nailed it a few times, which is, which is some, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> so even though you haven't nailed it sometimes, having nailed it ever is huge. And I think that I've, I've heard a lot of directors talk about utilizing either acting experience in the past or dropping into acting classes as a way to be understanding what actors need or how they work or what makes them comfortable or just getting on their wavelength. But I haven't heard it talked about too much in regards to comfort in a pitch because that seems yeah. like it could be pretty valuable. I think everyone should do acting classes. Like I think it's it's just like to build confidence. It's to build like understanding of how your brain works. And, you know, I think there's so, so many life skills in acting. Yeah, I've, I've often felt because no film school is educational, but we focus so much on filmmaker education. We don't talk a lot about acting, but I think that there's a lot of value in understanding what's going on there work-wise for the actors, for the filmmaker. Do you use what you've learned sometimes from acting class, for example, when you're talking to actors on set? Oh, absolutely. And actually, my rehearsal time is kind of what I'm known for, is that uh, whatever the studio, whatever the network gives me, I ask. I always ask to double it immediately. And um, <laughs> it's not... Uh, yeah, I'm just like, no, try. And then I told them, trust me, this will save us time on set. It'll make our days move so much smoother if you just let me, you know, really work with the actors. And it's not that we're going through the script necessarily. Um, sometimes we do that, but really it's about like uh, trust building stuff, backstory, a lot of character backstory, where their character was before this moment in time. And that's definitely a lot of that is, uh, you know, rooted in those acting classes that I took. So, and it does save you time on set. Oh, absolutely. To have done all one, of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, the biggest thing is that those actors trust me. Like by the end of that, however it is, one week, two weeks of rehearsals that we've got, um, you know, I've really built up rapport with them. You know, one of my favorite things to do is the, there's this thing that was published in the New York Times a few years ago called the 36 Questions to Fall in Love. And so we all do that. <laughs> and we all do that together. We do, do we, I get them to do it in character as well. Um, and oh. kind of, we, we all get to know each other really deeply and, you know, we're vulnerable. There's usually a lot of tears in, our, in my rehearsal room. I think that that rehearsal time is vital to, to, yeah, to establishing trust, but also character wise, they're so ready to go by day one of shooting. You know, my actors are really in it and they know who they are and they know where they're coming from. So it does make my days move much, much faster. I was going to say that, yeah, in, in just wrapping up the idea that you're using it to create trust so you're eliminating a potential friction. I think even in the director who's not thinking of themselves as an actor's director could get behind the idea, oh, if my actors all trust me when we arrive to set, then that will make one thing so much smoother that the production will go along a lot smoother. It's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I do these, uh, you know, there's something called the four agreements. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but I... um. It's no. just basically that every relationship in in the world can be ground if you 
every honest relationship it has four agreements that are never said. And I told them about that. And I tell them that's what I will always be. You know, one is like, be truthful with your words. Don't take anything personally. That's the hardest one. I will say that actors find that one really hard. Don't make assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> but directors do too. Well, you know, we're sensitive creatures. We're in the business of emotions, right? But um, Always do your ass- best. I'm looking. I'm looking at it yeah. now. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah. So I told them that, that I, that's how I'm always going to be with them. Like that's, I tell them, you know, and that's, you know, and if they feel so inclined, I would like them to be like that with me and, you know, never think that. And I think that that does build, you know, like you said, trust. And I think I've got their back. I always do have their back. And as long as they know that I'm never, gonna, you know, I'm always looking for the best performance and the best and, and, you know, helping them through navigate that. Yeah. Well, it's really cool. And you've dropped some interesting things for us to include in the show notes here, including the four agreements. I think that's a great tool. So thank you so much for joining us. I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I really appreciate it. The interview is available for people by the time this goes live. So be sure to check it out. Yeah. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jessica, for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. There are so many ways to get in. But I think one mistake people make a lot is they think they have to get in doing the thing that they want to do forever. And you don't. You move around. You make decisions and changes. You identify where your strengths and weaknesses are. Jessica's a great example of someone who sort of keeps evolving what's coming at her. But finds a way to stay busy and stay motivated and keep on the grind of just finding the next project, accepting that they're not all going to happen. That's one of the other hard realities of this. Be sure to check out all kinds of filmmaking education and tech and news at nofilmschool.com. That's our website, by the way. You can also like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast, which we always appreciate, and leave a comment and let us know what you think. And send us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. It doesn't even have to be a question. I say this a lot, but it can really be a comment. It can be something you disagreed with. It can be something we got wrong. We, the people doing this podcast and writing for this website, we don't have all the answers. And we know that. You might have some of the answers we don't have. You might have a perspective that changes how we see things. And then we can share that with everybody else in this community. That's the whole point of No Film School. So I hope you all have a great day. Thanks so much for listening.